Amen. Thank you, Dave. That ministered to me. I appreciate that. Well, good evening to each of you. We're glad you're here tonight at Grace Church Roseville. We are studying the book of Romans together, seeking to understand this key book in all of the Bible. If there were just one book that you could pick to seek to master, I would encourage you to consider this book. In it, we learn about the righteousness of God. That is the theme. We see that God is righteous in all his deeds. The book of Romans tells us about the righteousness of God, that in every relationship that he has, God acts righteously, always. He is righteous in his relationship to the world. The last time we talked about uh, Romans, we said that God's relationship to the world could be summed up in one word, and that is the word condemnation. That is a righteous response of God to the world. Why is that? Because whether pagan or moralist or Jew, all are under sin. In Romans chapter 3, excuse me, in verse 9, the apostle says, We have already charged, and that is a legal word fit for the court system. He says, We have charged, we have indicted, that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin. Possessing the knowledge of God, they reject it. Having a conscience that exposes guilt, they refuse it. Being given the law to reveal sin, they rather use it to attempt their own self-righteousness. All are under sin. And the conclusion of this first section of the book, describing God's relationship to the world puts God in several roles. First of all, we see God in the role of the judge. He examines the evidence before him in verses 9 through 12, and basically it says there is none righteous, not even one. In verses 13 through 15, God is, as it were, a physician, and he examines the patient. He gives his diagnosis. And the diagnosis is that the patient is in a terminal condition because of sin. In verses 16 through 18, it's as though God is an historian. He looks over the record of mankind and he finds it full of destruction. And then as a prosecutor, verses 19 through 20, God says that all are accountable to him. All are accountable to him. That includes you and me. And so we conclude with this first section of the book wondering how can any of us be made right with God? How can a person be made righteous in the eyes of God? Is there any hope for any of us? The answer, of course, is yes, there is. And we see the tide change now in verse 21 of chapter 3. The first two words, but now, actually forms something of a 
continental divide in the text. As you know, at the continental divide, the, the water that falls on one side goes to one ocean. The water that falls on the other side goes to another ocean. It is a division of the continent. And here we have a division. What has been said up to this point is condemnation for all men, because we're all under sin. But now we come to good news. There is a division here at this point. God has taken action to rescue sinners from their deserved condemnation. God provides a different relationship for those who will believe. God's relationship to the world, condemnation. But now God provides another relationship for those who believe. The relationship between God and believers can be summed up in one word, and that is the word salvation. You may want to write that in your outline. There's a spot for it. The relationship between God and the believers can be summed up in one word, salvation. God's relationship to the world, condemnation. God's relationship to believers, salvation. And this salvation includes both justification and sanctification. Two big words. Tonight we're going to talk about the first one. Because he talks about justification in the rest of chapter 3, through chapter 4, through chapter 5. Justification. Salvation also includes sanctification. And that's chapters 6, 7, and 8, which we'll talk about next Sunday night, the Lord willing. What is justification? Well, let's define it this evening just simply this way. It is the legal act whereby God declares the believing sinner to be righteous in his sight. Now more might be said about it, but I think that hardly less could be said about it than it is a legal act whereby God, this is God's work, you see, not ours, whereby God declares the believing sinner to be righteous in his sight. The word justification is related to the word righteous or righteousness. And it means that God sees us as being righteous in Christ because we've believed. Now in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 25, we find the basis for justification. And I want you to think basically about two words, because I think the basis can be summed up in these two words. One of them is Godward, one is manward. The two words are grace and faith. Grace, obviously, is the, man, the Godward word, faith being the manward word. In order for God to declare a believing sinner righteous, he has to have a legal justification for it. <clears throat> God simply can't sweep the sin under the rug and pretend it's not there. That would be unrighteous, and God cannot be unrighteous. God has to have a legally righteous way to deal with the sin. God cannot be anything less than just. And so, 
God in his grace has provided a means for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of righteousness. And that means is the sacrifice of his son. <clears throat> Notice that he says, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And so the basis for justification is grace, in the sense that God in his grace has provided, through the sacrifice of his Son, so that he can legally and justly declare us to be righteous. He can forgive us of the sin that we've committed, and at the same time give to us the gift of righteousness in his sight, because of Christ's death on our behalf. Now there are two words that that he employs here that, that gives some real meat to this thought. And those are the words redemption, which you see in verse 24, and the word propitiation in verse 25. Redemption means the deliverance of a payment price for a slave. One of the children gave me a novel based on uh, some of the history leading up to the Civil War for Christmas. I've just finished that. Uh, a thoroughly delightful novel. It's fictional, but uh, embraces a lot of, of history in it. And it reminded me again of the pitiful condition of a slave as I read that novel. <clears throat> a slave has no hope. A slave does not belong to himself. A slave is under the control of his owner. And he can be treated well or he can be killed, depending upon the whim of the owner. The Bible says that we are all under sin. And he says it flat out in chapter 6 that before we were saved, we were under the mastery of sin. Sin was our master. We were its slaves. But God, through Jesus Christ, has provided a payment price so that we could be purchased away from sin's mastery and then set free. The second word is the word propitiation, which is not as hard as it looks. It simply means a satisfaction. It's that which satisfies God's own righteous demands for the punishment of sin. On the one hand, God is the judge, and he says, condemnation, wrath, is my response to sin. And the sinner must die. On the other hand, God himself takes the place of the sinner and satisfies, through the death of his son, the very demand that he made upon the sinner death. That's propitiation. And because of it, God can show mercy righteously. In doing this, God demonstrated or proved his righteousness. He did not spare his own son so that he might 
give us freely the gift of righteousness. He mentions here that in the past God had passed over sin in the Old Testament. In fact, when you see that or hear that verb, passed over, it makes you think of one of the feasts, doesn't it, of the Jews, the feast of Passover. When a sacrifice was offered, atonement was made for the sins of the nation. God passed over them. He did not give them what they deserved for their sin because of the sacrifice. But all of those Passovers, all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament were like IOUs. They were accumulating. Those sacrifices could not deal with the sin itself. They could not remove the sin. But God did that in Christ, proving his righteousness for all of those IOUs in the past. May I say it this way, that God paid up when Christ died. He paid up all of the IOUs of the past. And righteously, through the sacrifice of Christ, laid a basis for salvation. The second word is the word faith. God provided also the means for this gift of righteousness to be received. And that is faith. In verse 22 he says, Even the righteousness of God through faith. Verse 25 he says, Through faith. Again in verse 28 he says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith is man's part in this. Faith is man's only acceptable response to the gospel. Faith is in itself no virtue. To believe is not a meritorious act. Because you see, all of the worth of faith is found in its object. Someone has said faith is only as valid as its object. People have faith tonight that their church is going to save them, or that the rituals they've been through are going to save them, or that their works are going to save them. They have faith, but it's not going to save them, because the object of their faith is invalid. Faith is only as valid as its object, and the only sufficient, the only valid object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. God has provided the only means by which this gift of righteousness can be received. It's the opposite of self-reliance, of self-effort, of self-confidence. Faith implies acceptance. It implies reliance. It implies dependence upon another, and in this case, Jesus Christ. And faith, as he says here, is apart from the works of the law. Faith and works do not mix. Whether it be Jew or Gentile, faith and works cannot mix. In the world today, there are <clears throat> two kinds of righteousness, two different religious systems. There is one religious system that talks about works righteousness. And people do what they can, they try their best, they turn over a new leaf, they reform, they do this, they do that. It's works righteousness and it does not save the soul. 
And you can include under that umbrella many different kinds of faith, all kinds of religion, man-made. It's all works righteousness when you get to the heart of it. On the other hand, there is biblical Christianity. And the religious system is faith righteousness. It is being made right with God, not through works, but by the act of believing the promise of God. That through the death, the sacrifice of His Son, we can be saved. <clears throat> now Paul takes a whole chapter, it seems to me, to illustrate this. Chapter 4. And he illustrates grace and faith through Abraham. He gives us several facts about Abraham's justification. In the first place, he tells us in verses 1 through 8 that Abraham was justified apart from his works. He says that if it's Abraham, or for that matter any of us, if God saves on the basis of works, then it's not a gift, it's a wage. And God doesn't give righteousness on the basis of wages. He gives it on the basis of a gift. And he uses here the word imputation, or the word reckon, as it is in the translation that I have. Verse 2, if, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? He quotes the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, imputed to him as righteousness. This word is an accounting word. Some of you are accountants. All of us deal with accounting if we have uh, any kind of business transactions. You sit down at your table or your desk and you write out a check for the account that you have over here at Dayton's, let's say. And you sign your name, you send the check off, and somebody in an office somewhere gets that check and sees there the account number and sees your name and puts that to your account. That's the word right here. God put righteousness to Abraham's account because of his faith. It wasn't works. It's a gift. It's not something that's merited. We don't earn it by wages. It's a gift that God gives. He puts it to our account based on faith. In fact, 11 times in this chapter 4, you find the word reckon or some form of it important concept. The second thing we see about Abraham's justification is that he was justified apart from his circumcision, verses 9 through 12. And of course, that physical circumcision was the boast of the Jew. It was the sign of the law. They were the circumcised. Everybody else was the uncircumcision. But was Abraham saved because he was circumcised? Well, Paul reminds us, in fact, that he could not have been because he was circumcised after God said that he was righteous. 
had nothing to do with his circumcision. And he concludes that salvation is by grace, not by some ritual, some outward sign or work for all people, whether Jew or Gentile. Thirdly, he says that Abraham was justified apart from the law. Verses 13 through 17. Why is that? Because Abraham lived hundreds of years before the law was ever given. Now keep in mind that there were many people in Paul's day, as in our day, who think that by keeping the Ten Commandments, so to speak, God's going to say you're okay. God says you're good enough, you're righteous, come on in. He says, no, no, no. Abraham's the illustration that we are not saved by law-keeping. The law wasn't even given until Moses' day, hundreds of years after Abraham died. He concludes verses 17 through 25 by saying, fourthly, that Abraham was justified by faith. He talks about the choice that Abraham made to believe God even against impossible odds. He was not overwhelmed by the fact that a child was physically impossible. God said, you're going to have a child. And he believed God. He made the choice to believe God. Faith is that, isn't it? It is for us today. It's a choice we make to believe God and not the circumstances that we may be facing at the moment. The promises of God. Living by the promises. And faith consequences are that it gets results. It did for Abraham and it does for us today. In Abraham's case, it was justification. And for us today, it's the same. Faith brings justification. Faith in the Lord Jesus. Notice it says in verse 24, But for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, that is, righteousness will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He says, He was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. As a commentator in the book of Hebrews says, faith sees the invisible, it believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. And so in these verses that we have looked at, we see the basis for justification. <clears throat> in a Godward sense, it's grace. It's all grace. God has provided for it in the sacrifice of his Son. From the perspective of man, the response, the only response that we can give is faith, to believe God. And it is that response of faith that God then uses so that we might be declared righteous in his sight. He puts the righteousness of Christ to our account. And now we come to chapter 5 in which he talks about the blessings of justification. First, the basis. Now the blessings that come with justification. He enumerates them, first of all, and then he explains how these blessings are ours. Uh, as I number them, I number at least seven of them. Uh, others have different ways of numbering them, but let me give you the, the seven that I would enumerate. The seven blessings of justification by faith. 
Number one, we have peace with God, verse 1. No longer is there war and hostility with God. There's peace with God. Number two, we have access to God, verse 2. We have been given the right of entrance into the very presence of God through the favor of another, that is Christ. No longer are we separated from God and held at a distance because of our sin. Our sin's been dealt with. We're righteous in Christ. And now we are embraced and we have access to God himself. Blessing number three is the glory of God. Verse three. The glory of God. That is our hope. That is our expectation. We are destined to share the glory of Jesus Christ because we've been justified by faith. Blessing number four is the working of God, verses three through five. The working of God in our lives. The tribulations, that is the pressures that we face, become the stuff that God uses to refine our character. God uses these experiences in a process which he names as being perseverance, first of all. We, we learn to abide under a load of pressure and stress. It's not easy. None of us enjoy that. But tribulations are a part of life, and one of the blessings of justification is knowing that these tribulations have a purpose. God is working in us. And it involves our patience, our perseverance, which then results in our proven character. God is, is about the business of maturing us as people, growing us up in Christ. He wants to prove, test, and find acceptable our character. He's building a way inside of you and me tonight through the tribulations of our life. I don't know about you, I'm glad for those breaks every now and then. And it would be awfully nice if life could just be one continuous break from tribulation, but that's not reality. Reality is that life is stressful, but God's using it. God's working through our stress. And uh, the end result is, is hope. I want you tonight to believe that God is at work in, in your life. Not in some broad, intangible way, but He's at work right now in that thing that is eating away at you. Or that pressure that is pushing down on you. Or squeezing you. God is at work in that tonight, right now, at this moment. Believe that. Because God says He is. Abraham believed God, didn't he? And his circumstances were a whole lot more tough than what most of us are facing. Well, another blessing he mentions in verses 5 through 8, the blessing of justification is the love of God. God's love is just poured out upon us. It's not that God's sprinkling us with his love. It's not that God is a garden hose and he's holding it out here with his love. But he's saying God has just flooded our hearts. He just opened the gates of the dam and the, the water just flooded out and filled everything. His love has consumed your life. 
And he says that God has objectively demonstrated this love through the sacrifice of his son. And you and I can subjectively sense it and know it. We have the love of God active in our lives. Blessing number six is the deliverance of God, verses 9 through 10. He says, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I take that as being a very specific wrath, not just wrath in general, but a future expression of God's wrath, which is going to come upon this world in the tribulation period. We're not going to be a part of that whole scene. We are going to be rescued or saved from that wrath of God that's coming upon the world through Jesus Christ. It's not that we're, we're going to be free entirely from tribulation. I'm not saying that. I've already said we're in tribulation now. But we're going to be saved from that aspect of tribulation that can be defined as the wrath of God being poured out upon this world that has rejected Christ. And then in verse 11 he says that a seventh blessing is joy in God. <clears throat> you, we, you and I not only exult in what we have in Christ, but we exalt or we boast in whom we trust. We boast in the Lord himself. We have the joy of God in our lives. Jesus said, you will have my joy because I've chosen you out of the world. And so he enumerates the blessings of God. And now in verses 12 through 21, he explains the blessings of God. This is perhaps one of the most complicated paragraphs in the book of Romans. Verses 12 through 21 talk about identification. All of these blessings that he's just enumerated come to us because of our identification with Christ. <clears throat> you will notice that this text revolves around two persons, Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ. And I want to emphasize these are two historical people. Those who think that Adam was not historical but merely represents something completely obliterate the meaning of this passage. If Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2 don't require a historical Adam, and, and they do in my opinion, Romans chapter 5 does require an historical Adam. Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. There's Adam. I'm going to take a moment to digress and just give you some conjecture on my part. So don't hold me to this uh, as though I had proclaimed that it was gospel truth and revealed from heaven. I'm not saying that. No angel delivered this to me. <clears throat> A few months ago, in the fall, there was an article in the newspaper in which at least one scientist postulated, he's not ready to state this fact, but he postulated that homosexuality 
is genetically related. You remember seeing that? I have a friend here in the Twin Cities that I've been seeking to minister to who is a homosexual, a part of the gay community. It wasn't but a 24 hours later that article was on my desk through the mail because he wanted me to know that what he is experiencing is genetic. The implication being, therefore, God can't hold him responsible for his actions because God made him the way he is. It's genetic, you see. Well, I thought about that. And I wondered if it can be scientifically proven, and it hasn't been, and I don't know that it can be, but if it could be scientifically proven that homosexuality or kleptomania or adultery or any other sin you want to talk about can be related to genetics, does that totally destroy our theology? Is man off the hook by that? Does that mean then these kinds of proclivities? Being related to genetics excuses man from responsibility for his actions? The more I thought about that, the more excited I got because of Romans chapter 5. And here's my conjecture. I wonder if, in fact, Adam's fall into sin involved in some way his genetics. So that the very sin and the proclivity to sin itself is, in fact, genetically passed on to his descendants. So it's not merely a spiritual identification, which is true. But even genetically, the proclivity to sin, and to certain sins perhaps, is passed on to Adam's descendants. In no way does that excuse man for his actions. To me, in my very preliminary thinking, my unscientific thinking, it may in fact just underscore what the scriptures say regarding the identification between Adam and sin. Or you can think about that and chew on it. And uh, don't go away from here saying, guess what the preacher said tonight? Because I'm just telling you what I'm thinking about. In verses 12 through 14, he makes a comparison. And of course, the comparison is between Christ and Adam. He says that both Adam and Christ are the head of a family and a kingdom. Adam is the head of the family of man and the kingdom of this earth, where he was until he lost it to Satan. And Christ is the head of redeemed man and the kingdom that he is establishing. And he notes that each of them is, a, is 
noted for one act that has far-reaching consequences. That's another way in which they're similar. Adam's act was sin. And the far-reaching consequences involved the passing on of sin to his descendants and the death that accompanies it. Christ's one act was an act of obedience by which he provided life and justification for his race, for his people and his kingdom. We can say that what happened to Adam happened to you and happened to me because we were in Adam when he fell. Genetically, we were there in him. And what happened to Adam happened to us. But we can also say, thank God, that what happened to Jesus happened to us. For we were crucified with him and we were raised from the dead with him. Now having made a comparison between the two, they're each the head of a kingdom and a family. They each have one act that they're noted for that has far-reaching consequences. He now in verses 15 through 17 talks about a contrast between Adam and Christ. And let me just list the contrasts. On behalf of Adam, there was transgression. On behalf of Christ, there was grace and obedience. Verse 16, on behalf of Adam, there was judgment. In contrast to that, with Christ, there is a free gift. With Adam, death reigned. Verse 17, but with Christ, the believer reigns. The contrast. And that brings us to the conclusion, verses 18 to 21. He says there's a sort of principle involved here. It's the principle of cause and effect. Something happened to one, and all were affected. Look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men who are identified with him, Even so, through one act of righteousness, the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men identified with the cross. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many identified with him were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many identified with him will be made righteous. Do you see what I'm getting at here? He's explaining why we have these blessings of justification. It's because of our identification with Christ. Just as we were identified with Adam, we are now identified with Christ. In Adam, we inherited death and destruction, and sin. In Christ we inherit life, and righteousness, and blessings. He says the law came in that the transgression might increase. That doesn't mean that the law made us more sinners than we were before. But it means that the law provoked us 
as he'll come to in chapter 7, and stimulated us so that our sin was evidenced. And not only that, it was more defined. An example of that, it's the common example. If you walk in a park and you come to a bench that says, please do not touch wet paint, what do you do? What do you want to do, at least? You want to touch it. Why? Because the law says, do not touch it. Well, is it, is it really wet and sticky? And you see, that's what the law did. God says, don't do this. Don't do that. There were good reasons, positive, wonderful reasons that God gave the law. But when we sinners saw, don't do this, all it did was make us want to do it. Because we're sinners. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now he gives the ratio between grace and sin. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. It superabounded. If grace is at this level, then, or sin rather is at this level, then grace is at that level. There is no way for one to sin beyond grace. He says, wherever there is sin, however much it increases, grace is always superior to sin. Now there are some people thinking, they say, wait a minute. Does that mean that we ought to sin more so that grace can abound even more? Well, Paul's going to get into that next week because that's the very question that comes up as chapter 6 begins. And it begins to deal with sanctification. Justification and sanctification cannot be separated. They are distinct, but they cannot be separated. Thus far, he's talked about justification and how God has provided that through the sacrifice of his Son. He says that when we have believed in Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of righteousness, and with that gift come all of these blessings he's enumerated. And we are identified with Christ now, made righteous in him. And grace just abounds in our lives. We are overwhelmed with grace. And so let's sing about it. Number 297 in your hymnal. The grace, the grace of God, which superabounds over our sin. I'd like for you to stand with me, please, as we sing this in closing. Grace greater than our sin. Let's stand together. And verse 4 will be our only verse, so sing it together. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace Freely bestowed on all who believe You that are longing to see His face Will you this moment His grace receive?
grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, deep God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Steve, would you come up a minute, Steve Peterson? Um, we've sung about the grace of God, and I want Steve to condense 10 minutes from the small church this morning into about one minute here and tell us uh, about the grace of God this week in your ministry. Okay. Um, well, as you know, a lot of you know, I work with Treehouse, and that's working with troubled youth out of Brooklyn Park, and I took some kids. Uh, Saturday night to the Washington Redskins Chapel. That was a week ago, right? That was a week ago, last Saturday, before the Super Bowl. And we had three kids stand up to receive Christ there. And I thought that was really neat. But then the next night, we came here. A lot of you probably were here, remember that. <laughs> As a matter of fact, there was a little grousing about it <laughs> from some quarters. And that's why I wanted you to share it, okay. what God did. Because okay. uh, some of the kids didn't act too church-like, did no, they, Sunday no. night? And besides that, they half-killed you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, then what, I was here Sunday night, and we had a bunch of kids, about 18 of us, and uh, while, during the Super Bowl, I started having these chest pains, and they moved all the way down my left arm, and um, so some, I thought I was having a heart attack, and so did other people, so I was taken to the hospital, and uh, somebody else had to take all those kids home. Daryl, thank you very much if you're here. And uh, I probably thought those kids were pretty well behaved. <laughs> but because um, I imagine they were kind of subdued. Well, I know that they were on the way home because they were pretty concerned about what happened to me. And on the, on the way over to the hospital, it, all these verses of assurance came to my mind. I was thinking of that verse in Romans. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And I knew that if I died, that I'd go to heaven. When I got to the hospital, I was rushing to the emergency room, and they hooked all these things up to me, monitors and all that kind of stuff. The guy next to me was really having a heart attack. And while I was laying there, they had to revive this guy three times. So that in itself was kind of scary. But I started thinking about him because this man had been drinking, and when he would come around, he had no idea what was happening to him. He would say things like, I'm not staying here, I'm going home. And his wife was there, and I started praying for this man because this man was on the edge of eternity. He didn't know it. It just, it just really hit me that if I died, I'd go to heaven. If this guy died, I'm not sure where he'd go. And anyway, what happened was a lot, those kids were really concerned about what happened to me. A lot of them called the hospital, and by that time I'd already checked out. I wasn't there that long, and uh, it wasn't a heart attack. Okay, I'll just tell you that. It was something else. And... Well, anyway, I, I, on Tuesday night, I was relating this whole story of what happened to me and how that I knew that if I died, I'd go to heaven. Well, I gave... Uh, You're like relating a, it to whom? To the kids. Mm -hmm. Most of these kids were there. Most of those 18 plus... Well, we had about 40-some kids there. And um, 
I gave an altar call that night, something we don't normally do at Treehouse, but I gave an altar call that night, and we had over 30 kids stand up to receive Christ. And it was fantastic to see, because a lot of those kids that you saw here on that Sunday night were some of those kids. And I knew it was genuine because it was like they all stood up at the same time. And, and afterwards, everybody was hugging each other, and uh, it was a great time of rejoicing. And I think that happened because a lot of you people pray. You know, we've, I've been there in Brooklyn Park for five years, and we've been planting the seeds, and, and finally all made sense to them. And uh, I just want to share that with you, and I want to thank you for being a part of that. Amen. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And that's what we've sung, and that's what we've seen illustrated. Thank you, Steve, for sharing that tonight. And uh, sometimes people who don't know Christ can be a little trying to those of us who are saved and sanctified. And <laughs> nearly perfect. <laughs> and uh, reaching out in the love of Jesus made a difference for all of eternity in some lives. Thank God. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in this evidence again of your grace. Thank you. Thank you for the work of the Spirit through these unusual circumstances. And our prayer is that that new birth that has taken place in these many lives will now be nurtured through these early and critical days. There would be a, an expression of maturity and growth. Father, we would even pray that some of these young men and women who we could go here tonight were a little tough to deal with, might go on to become missionaries and preachers, men and women who would serve you in a significant way in our world, thus magnifying your grace all the more. We worship you and praise you. And as we go, we go remembering that we too are the recipients of grace that superabounds even over our sin. Amen. Good night.